Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome back, everyone, to Episode 9 of the GeoMob Podcast. I am looking forward to today's conversation because we have a very longtime GeoMobster, Andy Allen who uh, was based in London and now lives in Poland. He's one of the early members of the OpenStreetMap community in London. And also, he's the founder of an online mapping service called Thunder Forest. So lots of things to talk about. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Our pleasure, our pleasure, man. So let's dive right in. What is Thunder Forest? What do you do there? Thunder Forest is a company that I own and run that provides map services for small businesses. If you want maps on your website or in your application, you're a developer, you're looking for some great maps, then you come to Thunder Forest. And we specialize particularly in activity maps. So instead of like generic background maps, or uh, you come to us when you're looking for maps for cyclists or for hiking or public transport or some kind of specialist map like that. That's really what we focus on. And the maps are made using OpenStreetMap, correct? That's the yeah. Uh, we use a couple of minor sources, but ninety percent of what you see on our maps all comes from OpenStreetMap, and it's really OpenStreetMap that allows our business to exist. Um, if it wasn't for OpenStreetMap, if it wasn't for all the interesting details that are there, we wouldn't be able to make interesting maps. So if we decided to try and use a different supplier like TomTom or TeleAtlas. They'll have roads, maybe they've got a few footpaths, but that's it. And it would be really limiting on the, on the kind of thing that, that we can make. But with OpenStreetMap, yeah, the world's your oyster. There's all kinds of really interesting niche things that you can pull out of the data and, uh, and display on the maps. So it's so really key that it comes from, from OpenStreetMap. And I was involved in OpenStreetMap long before I started making maps long before Thunder Forest appeared. So it's really a project and a company that's, that's grown out of a hobby rather than a business idea that was, was looking for data. Well, nevertheless, it's, it seems to be a thriving business. You've been doing it for quite a few years now. And I've seen the maps in lots of places. So congratulations to you. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's been going for more than 10 years now. It's still it's growing rapidly still, which is great. And yeah, there's, there's all kinds of different places that you find Thunder Forest maps cropping up. It's really pleasing when you spot somebody on the, on the tram or, or on the underground using an app and you, you see over their shoulder, you can, you can recognize the maps. I even had it recently where we were watching a TV show, a Polish language TV show, and I had to, to pause and point out to my wife, look, that's, that's my map up on the screen. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. That, that must have been a, a like deja vu type moment. That's cool. Yeah, it's, it's really weird, but it's, it's kind of awesome when you, when you can recognize something. And I mean, if you're a big enough map geek, even if it's just like blurry in the background, you can be like, no, I recognize this because of that. And so, yeah, good moment. As someone who also has a business that's based on OpenStreetMap primarily, OpenCage, our geocoding service, we get asked a lot about maps because customers will come to us and they'll say, oh, do you also do maps or not? And we, we very often recommend Thunder Forest because you have so many great designs. I mean, as, as you say, some of the activity maps like uh, OpenCycle Map, but you also have some really just wacky ones like Spinal Map, the heavy metal style, which is a lot of fun to look at. So what is the process? How do you create these styles? How do you get the ideas for them? How much work is it to create a style? How does that happen? 
So there's a few different places that the ideas come from. The most important one is is existing customers when the, when they're asking for something like you know they they like our maps, but it doesn't quite fit what they're needing for their new application. So those ideas come in and they pile up, and eventually, when enough people have asked for one of them, then we can develop that. So we've got a couple of styles on the go at the moment, which are under development, but really based on what customers are looking for. And then, of course, there's just having fun. The technology that I've been working on in order to make it easy for me to host different map styles means we can just do things for fun and it's not its not like there's a big infrastructure cost or anything like that. So I've worked with Richard Fairhurst, who you know well and, and many of your listeners will know, um, gave him free reign and said, come up with some styles that I haven't thought of. And that's where Spino Map came from. That's where our um, Pioneer Map, which which is a sort of 1800s-themed railway map came from as well. Those are great ideas from Richard that work really well with our infrastructure. And so when it means that when other customers come to us, we've got these kind of use-your-imagination styles. So, so I had a games development company who came. They were looking for a, a medieval-themed map. And they could really see from the Spino map and from Pioneer that it's not just serious maps that you can make. You can, you can really push the limits of our infrastructure. Yeah, this is really a case where the medium of a podcast doesn't do it justice. So I strongly recommend all the listeners take 10 minutes and go browse the site. And we'll make sure we get links in the show notes that people can check it out. There are some that are really, really fun, but also some that are very beautiful. I like your topographic maps. How much fine-tuning has to go on? Or is the map ever done? Are you continually finding new things to tweak and add? And isn't that a risk that you just endlessly fine-tuning? Yeah, there's, so there's two aspects to the fine-tuning. One is, it doesn't take that long to make a new map style and to get the kind of broad brushstrokes so that it shows the features you want to show, gets that kind of use case. But then there's all kinds of minor details because the world's a big and complicated place. And there's so many different things. Cable car stations are one that I was working last week on for the outdoors map. We've had cable cars for ages, but actually... When you're using the map, you realize sometimes the cable car stations need to be shown. And so that kind of endlessly adding more details or finding new places on the map where it's not clear. Or I look at one of my maps and think, I could do this better if I tweak this a little bit, use a different icon, move things around a bit. That process is endless. And then there's the second challenge which is the big challenge with OpenStreetMap, and that OpenStreetMap is always changing. The way that mappers want to map features and, and enter that data, the tags that they want to use, sure, some of the main ones stick around, but when you start getting into the more interesting tags and interesting features, all of a sudden they can decide, hey, there's a new tag for this, or we're going to map it in a different way. And so you do need to keep on top of, of those changes as well. But that's a key bit of value add that that businesses can make on, on top of OpenStreetMap is, is keeping up with those kind of changes. Well, this is for us one of the, and it must be similar in your business, one of the big challenges that many people underestimate is they think, oh, I just need to set it up. But actually, OpenStreetMap is kind of a living beast, right? And the data is changing at such a rapid rate, and new things are constantly coming out. And it can be a real operational challenge just to keep everything running. It's a challenge. It's okay when this is what you're concentrating on. Where I see it is other businesses who, who aren't really focused on OpenStreetMap. They maybe set something up once. Um, they expect it to remain the same for a long time. And you can see their maps start to degrade. Or they just make mistakes, simple mistakes, like assuming that the highway tag is for, is for roads. 
but it also includes loads of other stuff as well. So sometimes you can see a company that has set up their own OpenStreetMap stuff, and it's like, yeah, I can see where you were going with that, but you didn't really know the details. But for folk who are um, running businesses that are based on OpenStreetMap, um, like we're immersed in this kind of stuff. So when the changes happen, we just roll it out and, and move on. Yeah. Well, let's continue on this theme because as someone who's been in the OpenStreetMap community for a long time, over the last couple of years, we've seen more and more big players kind of enter the community in different ways. I mean, the great example is Facebook, who's now doing a lot in OpenStreetMap, not always with the smoothest relationship with the existing community. As someone who operates a small business, how do you, how do you see that dynamic? And is that an opportunity for OpenStreetMap, a threat? Is it both? How do, what's your perspective? Well, from the, the small business perspective, then it's all, it's all good news because these big companies that are coming in, like your Facebooks, I know that Apple uses OpenStreetMap data as well. They're not competing against my business. They're, they're off doing their own thing. What they do bring in is some expertise into OpenStreetMap, some conflict as well, as you say. But the more that OpenStreetMap gets used, the more places in the world get mapped, the better it is for, for everybody who's using OpenStreetMap. Because it's one of the things I've noticed in the last four or five years is the most common question from prospective customers has just changed. When I started this business, it was always, where is OpenStreetMap complete? Is OpenStreetMap ever going to be complete? What about Germany? How does it work in this country or that country? Those questions have ended now. Like People just know OpenStreetMap. They know that it's big, it's used by big companies. It's fine. Um, and that's been a real boost to small businesses working with OpenStreetMap. So some of that is just time passes and OpenStreetMap continues to be successful. Sometimes some of it's boosted by these big players coming in and uh, helping out with some of the mapping. Yeah. What's your perspective on a lot of these big players? Again, Facebook being an example. A lot of the mapping now is let's say, assisted by technology, be that you know, image analysis of satellite images or whatever. How do you view that as someone who got started in the very, very early days? I mean, I think you were one of the first handful of OpenStreetMap contributors, weren't you? Like riding around on your bike and, and with your GPS device. Yeah, I was, it was more than a handful when I was there. But yeah, certainly that's how I started riding around with the GPS. We didn't have aerial imagery, all that kind of stuff. So my view on getting the external help is... So long as it's providing tools to help regular mappers, I'm all for it. If you're trying to bypass regular mappers and stuff data straight into OpenStreetMap, then no, I, I don't like that approach. And actually, yesterday, I, somebody linked to a blog post that I had written 11 years ago on this topic. I looked back slightly carefully going, you know, do, what were my views like back then? But actually... They turns out they haven't changed much in, in 11 years and I was, I was still on the, that same track. So if you build a tool that integrates with ID or JOSM or any of the other OpenStreetMap editors and it suggests changes or helps with another background layer or some kind of way to enable mappers and to, to make individual contributors more powerful, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. Let's switch tacks a little bit, Andy, because you know, since you left the UK, it's been a while since we've had you at a Geomob. But when you were a regular attendee, one of your, you know, we would often have startups come or people come with their ideas, and you would often kind of lead the questioning around the business model and how will this ever become a business. So tell us a little bit about more the business side of your business. How, what's your pricing model? How does how does that work? 
Yeah, so I always have fun at Geomob with that question, but it's a, it's a question that I reserve only for the right opportunities because there's loads <laughs> of stuff that we see at, at Geomob, which is like, hey, I'm having fun. I've done this cool thing. Look at my cool thing. And I never ask them, like, what's the business model? Because if it's, if it's a cool thing, if it doesn't need a business model, that's fine. But when people come in and they haven't really thought through what their business model is, and it's like, hey, we've got a team of people, we're doing this professionally, we're planning and making a business out of it, but we're just going to give everything away for free and work out what the business model is later, then that always rings little alarm bells for me. Because I've been there, I've done that, I've worked for a big VC-backed startup where we just gave stuff away for free and hoped it all worked out in the end. And it didn't all work out in the end. So. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't want to see people making those same mistakes, and that's the that's the key bit about my business model. So, I, I run a small business. I don't run a startup. I, I don't have funding. It's all bootstrapped, um, which means I need real customers who are going to pay money every month to my company. So I solve a problem. They pay me money. Very straightforward um, business model. No kind of crazy advertising nickels on the dollar or anything like that. Just provide a good service and they pay. And the specific business model is request-based model. So we've got multiple different APIs. Our, the developers or customers who, who use their APIs, whenever they make requests to a service, we count them up and that's how much you pay every month. So we have a few few tiers to keep the billing nice and straightforward. And yeah, that's what that's what people sign up to. But do you ever get pushback on that? Because sometimes people say, "Oh, well, you know, I heard OpenStreetMap was free. Why should I have to pay?" We we occasionally do get people with that type of attitude, and you know, I try to explain, "Oh, well, we're providing a service, and yes, the data is free, but you know, we still have to keep the servers running." Do you, do you ever get that? And how have you seen that change over time? I don't get it that much. I, I have a free tier available, and so a lot of people use the, the free tier. But I don't know, maybe there's just something around the wording on the website that, that means people expect that they're going to have to to pay for it. I do have people who quite often question the pricing because perhaps they they don't feel it's value for money. In every case, when you dig into it, it turns out that their budget is about 10 or maybe $20 a month and those customers, for a small business, those customers are just not worth chasing. Like it's it's great if they someday want to come and, and spend some money, um, you know that that's no problem. But for small businesses, you have to aim for customers who are going to pay a decent amount of money, because you don't have an unlimited support team. You, you can't answer a thousand support requests a day, um, so you don't want a thousand customers, each of whom are only giving you five dollars a month. Well, yeah, it's perverse. It's almost the the less they pay, the more support they require. Yeah, and that's and that's that's my experience with people as well who are, who question the the value is they they tend to then have lots of other questions and, and want lots of help. The customers who come in and go love your pricing model seems very reasonable for for what you're offering. Um, I, I signed up yesterday. Then those are those are the customers you want. Like they're they're happy. They can see the value and the support and, and things like that. And they're not trading off on the hey maybe I could do it myself or I find these random guys who set up shops six months ago and they're offering uh, stuff for free. You know, there's there's two sides to it. And you as a small business, you want to focus on the people who are are seeing the value in what you do. 
Yeah. Are you typically getting people who are coming to you because of the aesthetics of the map or because of because it's OpenStreetMap? Because I know you're quite well known in the OpenStreetMap community. What's the dynamic there? More. Listen, it's a mixture of things, and I don't have the most sophisticated kind of funnel tracking to, to figure out where people are coming from. A lot of it is the, the reputation of the maps that we've got already. We've been around for, for many years, so people have heard of Open Cycle Map, they've heard of our transport map, they've heard of, of outdoors, and so they know who to come to for that. Also, because our maps are often quite a big part of what they see on other apps. So if they're setting up a new business and they, they look at other uh, oh, right, competitors right. or similar fields, they can see these maps and they go, right, where does this come from? So that, that makes it easier for me than for uh, people like you um, because it's not so obvious when who's powering the geocoding or who's powering the routing. For the maps, it's, it's such a distinctive visual element that you can be like, oh, that's an interesting looking map. Where does this come from? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is one challenge we face. And and I guess, yeah, your product does advertise itself in that regard. So any any advice for anyone out there thinking of starting a business based on OpenStreetMap? Yeah, definitely. This is something I can stand in the pub for hours and, and chat about. <laughs> but the, the, the key thing is you first need to know who your customer is and focus on customer. Who's going to pay you money? for this because there's a million interesting things that I can think of doing for OpenStreetMap, especially things that would be really useful for mapping and the mapping community. But with the best will in the world, they're not going to pay you £100 a month to, or $100 a month to, to do this. I read an article many years ago which was, was really clear in this and it's something I, I always recommend people to look up. It's an analogy about what size of customer you want to aim for. And the analogy is, are you hunting rabbits, deer, or elephants? And elephants are big companies like FTSE 100 or companies. They're basically, they're too big for a small business to aim for, especially for your first few customers. Rabbits are like end users, individual users, like people who sign up for, for Facebook or consumer services. And there's millions of them, but they're small and they're hard to catch and they, they escape really easily. And then deer are perfect for hunting. You get a reasonable amount of food, they're reasonably easy to catch. You don't need any specialist tools to, to get them. And that's definitely my advice for businesses is to go for primary customers or other small businesses. They have so many advantages. The best one is... If you're talking to somebody in a small business about your product and you're trying to get them to convince them, if you're talking to the, the person who owns that company, you know, built it from scratch, has all the decision-making authority, then you're done. When, when they say, yeah, I'm going to sign up, then they just sign up. They, they put their card information in. That's the end of it. If you're going after big enterprises, you can spend months going through their procurement division or especially one of my customers has a separate company that screens their suppliers for them. And that's just a whole load of hassle. Yeah, yeah I can attest precisely to what you're saying. Yeah, We have the challenge, and, and maybe it's similar for you, is that very often we get kind of discovered by the, the software developers at a company and they start using it and they like it. And then they say, okay, now, now the project's going forward. Like it's time to, you know, we need to increase the volume. We want to become a customer. And then it, you know, at that point you've got to deal with the person who can actually make the decision and pay the money. And oh man, it can be a pain. 
Definitely. So that's a key bit of building a business in front of OpenStreetMap instead of just doing something cool with OpenStreetMap. Um, so if you're if you're clear on your customer, it also helps define what you want your product to be as, as well. It needs to be like like you say, we're both in the same industry. We've got something that's useful for developers, but then sometimes they're not the people who, who choose to spend the money. And if you've got that clear in your head, then it really helps with things like website design and messaging and the different audience that you're talking to in different parts of the website. So like API documentation can be written quite distinctly from the, hey, sign up. We're uh, you know answering the questions that the purchasing manager has. Yeah, yeah. There's a real art to it to navigating that and, and getting the right tone on the right page to, in front of the right audience. So, oh yeah, and and this is again where being clear on what kind of company you're chasing can help because I've I've come across places where the developers are using our services, the payment teams are are coming in and starting to cause too much trouble, and sometimes it's just like it's fine to walk away from that and say like i'm not betting my business on needing this one customer deal to succeed and it takes a lot of pressure off if i only had three large businesses as my customers then a whole lot is invested in trying to navigate their internal bureaucracy. And, and that can be a complete nightmare. I agree. <laughs> I agree. You're preaching to the choir as someone who has, has had to navigate that very path. It can be a nightmare. All right. So what's next for Thunder Forest? What does the future hold for you? Well, there's a whole lot of interesting technical things, but I'll leave that um, off offline. I've got some more map styles and some more APIs coming up. The big thing for Thunder Forest is trying to maintain the edge on technology. So a lot of stuff is moving towards vector tiles. It's not the solution for, for everything. But we have our vector tiles APIs available. We're working on that. We've had two releases of new vector tile sets in the last 12 months. So and, Andy, um, so one before we go further, maybe just for the benefit of this audience, what are vector tiles? It, it, like very quickly break this down just to make sure everyone's aware. Because it's it's one of the key technological changes I think going on right now. Yeah, sure. So most people will be more familiar with raster tiles or normal image tiles, which is when you look at a map, what gets sent to you over the internet is pre-made pictures, small square pictures. And sometimes, especially if you're on a slow connection, you can see those pictures popping up on, on your screen. Um, they're great. They fit a whole load of use cases. But there's a few edge cases where having the images already made before you send them over the, the wire isn't the best option. So vector tiles are a different way of achieving the same maps, but where you send the raw data over the internet and either your phone or your web browser color in the maps for you. So that means you can do some interesting things involving having different map styles without having to fetch more data over the network. It can work well for offline use cases and slow connections where Depending on your application, sometimes it's quicker to pull the raw data over and draw the maps locally than it is to fetch the, the pre-rendered maps. Okay, excellent summary. So, so you say you're moving, everything's moving much more towards vector. Yeah, so, so we've been using them behind the scenes for years now. Um, all, of our, all of the raster maps that we provide are actually being 
uh, created using vector tiles behind the scenes. But the problem with the vector tiles, or one of the, the main downsides, is they need a lot more CPU power, a lot more processing power on the devices to, to draw. And it, it just wasn't feasible 10 years ago to be doing this. But as everything gets more powerful, more and more people are, are doing them online. So we're seeing more of our customers taking the vector tiles from us and and doing onboard rendering. So that's where we're we're focusing a lot of our development effort on, on making this easier for people to get started with, whilst still keeping our our edge on the custom map styles and all the interesting things we've done before. Well, sounds good. And congrats on how far you've come. And I look forward to all the future map styles. I'm sure they'll be cool. Hopefully, obviously, you're always welcome to come speak at a GeoMob anytime to tell us about your progress. Yeah, thank you. What our traditional closing question as we kind of wrap up here, looking back as a longtime attendee, any favorite GeoMob talks that stood out for you? I mean, this, this is a really hard question because I've been doing GeoMob since the start. So I've missed the last uh, year or two, but there's hundreds, there must be hundreds of, of talks that I've been to. The ones that immediately sticks out in my mind, though, was uh, one a few years ago from Anna Pell Smith, who was talking about land ownership and property ownership in the UK and using different data sets, different open data, in order to investigate how much property and how much land was being owned by offshore companies. And I really liked that because immediately, I think even whilst she was still talking, I was on the website that she was talking about and looking at my local area and finding houses within a few hundred meters of where I live that were owned by shady offshore British Virgin Islands uh, companies. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, great. That was a great project and also a great presentation that she gave and she won the best speaker prize. But also, you know, I've seen it cited numerous times in, in media and things it's become a tool that a lot of people are using to try to understand this situation better. So good choice. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a great story around open data and open government data as well, uh, which I think is, is really important to have those stories and to tell the story as well. It's interesting. You're you're the second person actually to mention her. Stephen Feldman also mentioned her talk in a, in an earlier episode. So we'll have to get her on the podcast here and get her to talk about it in more detail. Okay, yeah, Andy. Sounds good. What's the best way for people to learn more about you and about Thunder Forest? How can they get in touch? For Thunder Forest, thunderforest.com has all the details. If you've got any questions, there's a, a link on that site. Just just send us an email and, and we can answer your questions. Uh, for my personal stuff, I think Twitter is probably the best place to see what I'm looking at and what I'm thinking about. Uh, and I'm Gravity Storm on Twitter. Excellent, Eddie. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Stephen at Stephen Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode, and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.